Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Real Real. Shop or consign at The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated consignment from top designers. The Real Real has women's and men's luxury fashion as well as fine jewelry, watches, art, and home at up to 90% off retail. Every item is authenticated by The Real Real's team of authenticators. Shop or consign in-store at therealreal.com or download the app and get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members, including active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their families. You'll receive a lifetime of membership benefits with Navy Federal, and you can easily access accounts, transfer money, pay bills, and deposit checks with the Navy Federal mobile app. Visit NavyFederal.org watch for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app Message and data rates may apply. I need sports staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me in the studio, he walked on water to get here. It's Andy Greenwald. Chris, I'm a little shaky today. You're always shaky on Monday mornings, man. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I don't think this is your, your this is not your prime time. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, you know, longtime listeners know that I rush here on Mondays to be with you and Kaya, my two only friends from school drop-off. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I'm a little scarred from what I saw this morning. It was third act zombie movie. Why? In there. Flu season, baby. Oh, no. I'm so glad you came here directly Flu from season. there. And I'm walking so wait, around. Are kids just like complete? Is it like mash tent? Like, what's going on? They're just on? not there. Oh. It's just like you walk in and seven faces look up and they're usually 24. Yeah. And and the teachers who were both out last week also <laughs> were like, oh, we're happy to see you. But like you could tell they were a little surprised. They were like hoping maybe to keep it at seven that day. And then and then full disclosure, you know, I woke up feeling a little, little, little scratchy today. Uh-huh. And I got, I, I'm feeling major Brendan Gleeson and 28 Days Later vibes. <laughs> you know what I mean? When it's just like, I know what just happened to my eye, uh huh. but I don't want to tell you guys yet because, like, you're my friends and family. So you and I are spending actually quite a bit of time together yeah. today. Yeah, you're you're done. <laughs> you're done, dude. <laughs> we share everything. Greenwald, it's really good to see you. Is it? <laughs> uh, it was until you walked right in here. Full, like full the disclosure. concept of seeing you was really cool. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk entirely about the uh, finale, the season finale, possibly the series finale. Yeah. of Watchmen. Uh, episode is called See How They Fly. It aired last night. Obviously, Andy and I have spent the last two and a half months talking about this show. Or just mm. two months. So what did you, let's just get right into it. What did you think of the finale? Um, I think my main feeling, and it, and, you know, and it was pretty consistent right from the top of the season, was one kind of of awe and gratitude. Because mm-hmm. I think that the, the audacity of this show in terms of its storytelling, in terms of its ambition, in terms of the thematic sandboxes it wanted to play in, in terms of the larger, you know, meta structure of IP that we are always talking about on the show, and it, it, you know, in the sense of what people can and can't do with these sacred cows. And uh, maybe in retrospect, it's quite significant that Damon chose to spend the first episode of his series blowing Gatling gun-sized holes in cows, yeah. sacred or not. Shooting that frozen shrimp. Um, well, no, that was later, <laughs> yeah. right? It was a full surf and turf season. Yeah, that's right. I'm just so, I'm impressed by it. Uh, I am grateful for watching it, and I am excited by it. 
those are my main emotional reactions to the show. Step down a level. I think I had some questions, concerns, and discussion items, mm -hmm. as my old social studies teacher might, might say. Yeah. But I really wanted to lead with the sort of shock and awe of it because I don't want to discredit that. And it's something that we said to Damon last week, having not seen the finale, having seen up to it. You know, obviously he was feeling very sensitive about, about the finale and how it would be received. And judging by at least just the critical response, it's been rapturous. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he has anything to worry about in terms of that. But I, but I, I really did mean what I said to him. And, and, and I think we'll probably unpack it a little bit more today, which is this journey was worth the ride, regardless of endings or landings or however you want to put it. Right. Um, I, I think that the, again, back to that word audacity, I think the, the, the audacity of what he tried to do in nine episodes of television is just unparalleled and potentially uh, insane. I don't think there was any way to wrap even Dr. Manhattan-sized arms around all of it. But I love that he tried. Yeah, I think it was a, a show that only could have happened in 2019, both in terms of its content, in terms of the kinds of things that it was grappling with and reckoning with and pushing out into the light that had sort of been in the dark for too long and also doing so in an incredibly entertaining manner and an incredibly exciting way of telling that story. And so I thought it was a really breathtaking glimpse at something new and sometimes a distracting service to something old, which is also a very 2019 mm -hmm. thing where, as you and I talk about all the time, we're constantly kind of in this push-pull tug-of-war with, well, we can't make anything that people aren't already aware of. Yeah, We can't do anything that people already don't have um, some store of emotional investment saved up, you know, with mm -hmm. because otherwise, you know, for whatever reason, we just don't trust people with anything new. And Watchmen was new, but Watchmen was old. And I think at the end of the day, it was interesting having Damon in here because I think he was thinking about sticking the landing and answering mm -hmm. the questions. And yeah, I don't want to speak for him, but that was the sense I got from him. But I thought I thought that he stuck the landing and answered the questions. I mean, everything that you would want kind of wonder about that show for the most part was answered. The thing, the only kind of like, and it wasn't like a bad taste. Like this was one of my favorite shows that's come out this year and in many years. The only thing that kind of bothered me was he at the end of the day had to turn the car back towards the Watchmen parking lot. Yeah, that was, it was parking space. Really yeah. surprising. Of the many things that were surprising about the show, the structure was particularly surprising because I think a more standard way of approaching a material that is, no matter what you want to call it, whether it's a remix or a reboot or a spiritual sequel, the more uh, logical way to do it would be to begin with the clear connections to the original sure. source material and then deviate in potentially exciting or wild ways. He did the opposite. And I think that's what has confounded people to some degree, again, in ways both positive and negative. The first few episodes of the show felt pretty radical and radically untethered mm -hmm. from this sacred book that, I mean, he refers to it, you know, as the Old Testament of this story of the original Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons comic book. Post episode six, which I think is generally and correctly recognized as the high watermark of the series, it took a hard turn back towards connections to the point where no character, no major quote unquote new character was untouched yes. by the events. There was there was some the link. You know, and he um 
he he gave he had he did a really good he's done a bunch of interviews since the uh, finale aired last night. My favorite was in Vulture with Angelica J. Bastian, who did a really great job writing about the the show this year. I agree. And uh, you know, I highly recommend people check that out. I highly recommend people check out Micah's videos on the Ringer that have been recapping the episodes and Daniel Chin's pieces on the Ringer that have been recapping the episodes. But in his interview with Angelica, Damon said this because they were sort of talking about you know the connections between characters between the new characters that he had sort of that they had pushed out in the show versus their relationship to characters in the book. And he said, and all of those iterations, I was vehemently shouting at the top of my lungs, we're not doing Watchmen babies. I don't want everyone on the show to be related to someone from the original Watchmen. Billy Crystal and Princess Bride voice. It's Uh so predictable and so obvious, and we're not doing it. Lo and behold, it felt like story gravity. It's the same conversation around Star Wars right now. Yes. Is it cooler that Rey is not related to anybody from Star Wars? Yes. Or does the story demand that she is? Because when you're talking about myth, that's the way myth works. It's so interesting. You know, again, like, Damon is so smart about this stuff. And if there's something that we are, quote unquote, concerned about, rest assured he has spent weeks laying up awake thinking about it, being much more concerned than we'll ever be. Uh, and we'll be able to answer to his decision-making very eloquently and very thoughtfully. I think that in the second half of this show, you and I should probably do a little Star Wars 9 spitballing. Sure. Because we're going to be seeing it later. Um, and then hopefully we'll pot about it as well. But like all signs... No, let's just skip it. You think? Let's just not mention it. I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, all evidence, especially in this sort of shadowy Ryan Johnson, J.J. Abrams... It's not flame war. It's a one-sided, out-of-context comment spree. But Mm -hmm. all of the sort of whatever's floating up from this movie and even the title seems to suggest a repudiation of that idea that was introduced in The Last Jedi that what if she's just the daughter of trash farmers? Yeah, kill the past. Kill the past. And Rise of Skywalker has always suggested that the Jedi are done, but there's going to be a new race of knights called Skywalkers, and she's a Skywalker, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. You can tell by the tone of Andy's voice that— I'm super into it. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. But this is what I'm saying. It's like, what's, what is story gravity? Well, that, that's the thing. And how essential is it? And I guess, you know, it, there, is, there is a symmetry to it. There's a beauty to it. There's a neatness to it. Um, Watchmen is about things happening, all time happening all at once. And so, you know, uh, thermodynamic miracles or coincidence, whatever you want to call it, that's baked into the architecture that predates Damon's involvement in it. In terms of making this a Damon Lindelof show, making Lady True a, I don't know if she's a villain, making her a larger-than-life character who ultimately just wants her dad and mom to be proud of her, Mm -hmm. definitely puts her in the Lindelof universe, which made it interesting to him, Mm -hmm. I think. I feel it's fair to say that. And and I think made it it tonally, um, vibrate tonally with a lot of the rest of the show. That made sense. But, you know, it did feel, there, there was a sort of, Story gravity, if it pushes down on on them in the writer's room, I can also make the argument that as a viewer, it can feel oppressive. Like you're feeling pushed and there's a weight pushing down on you into this certain way of it being where all the pieces fit. And then there's something, this seems odd what I'm about to say, but I think that as a viewer, sometimes smoothness and resolution can be dissatisfying. Well, this is- Despite what most people think. I'm not actually bringing this up as specifically as a critique. I think the only reason why I felt that gravity and I felt that pressure you're talking about is because the first six episodes of the season specifically, mm-hmm. seven to, is, is a God Walks Into A Bar seven? 
Uh, no, that was last week. That was eight. That was eight. So the but specifically the first six episodes. Seven was Lori goes in the trapdoor. Right. So the six episodes, I felt like they had liftoff. I felt like they kind yeah. of transcended gravity. I felt like we were seeing something new in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, what I what I mean is not they swapped Tulsa in for New York City, although that was fascinating, mm-hmm. and that there was not only a there was an obvious understanding of everything that had happened in the, the Watchmen world from 1985 on, but also the world. Mm-hmm. Like, it felt very relevant to the world that we live in. And there are so few comics that have that explicit connection. Like, for whatever reason, Watchmen does. It did when it came out and it before. Pro- and it proved, Damon proved that it could again. And Damon proved that it, it could again. So I think that that was what, when we get into, essentially, Laurie and Looking Glass reenacting the end of the first Watchmen. Yes. I was kind of like, okay. Yeah, this is cool. Like, I, yeah. I'm glad Lori got this kind of closure, I guess, from the first. Last time she was at Karnak in, on Antarctica with when someone she was asked to keep the secret, you know what I mean? And and go th- and go through this. But the way that they imagined Lori in this phone booth calling an absent god who mm-hmm. also happened to be her ex, that was the thing that I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I haven't but, seen this. But you there know? wasn't, I think ultimately there wasn't room for all of it, which is not necessarily a fault of anyone. Nobody's It's fault. just part of, Part of, I think part of accepting the show into your heart, which I have done, is accepting just the sheer magnitude of its ambition, how many things it was trying to do all the time, like Dr. Manhattan, Unstuck in Time. I mean, that is maybe the best on-screen versus off-screen analogy we can work with, that he was in that, that box mm-hmm. wrestling with all the timelines at once. I mean, that, I mean... As a critic, I loved coming up with these elegant metaphors for the creator within their work. But, sure. But there you go. I mean, that it doesn't get any better than that. I think that what we're you and I are grappling with, and I know we're going to pivot into some of the things that we truly unreservedly love, too. Um, but I think the thing that you and I are both grappling with is that for, for six episodes, uh, Watchmen seemed like a show that was doing Herculean work grappling with 100 years of American history mm-hmm. and the parts of American history that usually are not grappled with or touched or put on television, certainly. And for the last few episodes, it felt like it was doing Herculean work grappling with a 30-year-old comic book. That was part of the challenge. Mm-hmm. That was that was the mission, Mr. Lindelof, that he chose to accept. <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, and, and one that he took extremely seriously as discussed in every interview. Um, but and you know we it's sort of funny to um for the last decade basically Damon Lindelof's, Lindelof's been asked about how and when he is going to end something mm-hmm. and now we're like why did you end it yeah no it's because it's, that is actually win. what I'm saying I mean like and there's another it was just sort of an aside in the in the Vulture interview but Damon was like oh we wish we could have done more with Lady True but as the show was moving into its end game it had to focus down on Angela and Cal yep. Okay, well, I, I but like take it as a compliment that I am upset about that. Yeah, not like mad throwing my t- my cable box out the window, but upset just like you had something incredibly special here. Yeah, I I I went back and forth on it. I definitely sat in front of this microphone and talked about how it felt um almost too big with too rich with possibility to to end. I actually think, in the sense that that Alan Moore famously never went back. To Watchmen, and then it took DC 25 years to get the moral courage or cowardice to start 
mining, strip mining it for parts like they did with uh, a sequel series, et cetera. I think it makes sense that Damon's done. Mm-hmm. I think he did leave everything he didn't leave on the floor. He left in the gym. You know, there are these, as he talks about in these interviews, they're clear tendrils of stories that could have been. I think the thing that f- for me felt the most lightly serviced at the end was this 7th Cavalry slash KKK slash white supremacy storyline. Now, let me say what the show never stopped saying about representation and power and abilities and masks and why we wear them, that never, that really never diminished. And that is very important as well. But just in terms of what is the villainous structure of a show that felt, it's interesting, in the beginning, it felt like it had kind of villains. And then it transcended that and became about something else. But then in the end, it was more comic booky, but without those villains or sort of servicing them in a way that felt overtly comic booky in yeah. a not always the best uh, sense of the term. I mean, the, I would say the, the low point for me as a viewer of the series was uh, Josh Walk doing a Bond villain speech in his underwear. Yeah. Um, James Walk. James Walk. Right? James Wolk, I'm sorry. I've, I've missed... Somehow, you've never really normal name James Wolk, the hardest one, but also like just unique enough that you think you'd remember it. And I think we've called him well because James York, <laughs> Josh Wolk. Josh Wolk worked at Vulture. Yeah, nice we, guy. We've literally like come up with almost, and we also both really like him as an actor. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Sorry about that. He, I was not prepared. That's an. It's, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that scene. So in the in the finale, obviously, the sort of last act features Senator Keene giving a long speech as he is undressing and wearing the OG Dr. Manhattan girdle tighties, you know? Banana hammock. Yeah, I like those because you get the high hip too. (laughs) Um, He gives like a long speech basically explaining why he's doing what he's doing and what he plans to do with his newfound powers. Um, And a state of the world speech about about, Redford. Yeah, and 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 a state of the world speech about certain anxieties that are out there in our world now of people yes. wh- who are raging against this supposed oppressive nature of, of social justice. Mm-hmm. You know, and saying like, oh, I don't, I shouldn't have to apologize for things that it's I... getting like two 40-year-old white guys can't have a podcast anymore. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> he does all this. He's taking all his clothes off there, to a rapt audience, literally, of, of, yeah. of white Including supremacists. Dad. Would yeah. you do this in front of your dad? No, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> By the way, Flip side, dad did not seem too upset when Junior turned into a puddle of goo. <laughs> I was checking for those Senator Keen, Keen senior... the, the elder Senator yeah. Keen, someone of a limited emotional range. Fair. Yeah. Fair. But even once he gets annihilated, yeah, everybody's still sitting in the pews there. But he gives this speech, and I was, you know, I, I remembered at the end of the Watchmen comic, Adrian gives a similar speech explaining his whole master plan. Yes, he plan. does, yeah. And, uh... Night Owl and Rorschach are like, dude, like, this is crazy. You can't do this. Most, mostly they're like, this sounds like bullshit. But then they're like, you yeah. can't do this. And he's like, I already did. Why would I tell you about it before I did it? Yes. Now. I did it how many minutes ago? He, he is say? the smartest man in the world. Yeah. Self, self-described. I guess he is. They can't, I can't argue it. So I, I'm not saying that Senator Keene. <laughs> you can't argue the point. Is the by being, like, not the smartest man in the world, that, are you so dumb that you would, while undressing, <laughs> explain to a room full of people, including Angela, what you're doing? Well, he did power his plan with, you know, scientific mumbo-jumbo machines, all clearly branded with an enemy's logo. 
as Angela pointed out. You know, they were all they were all pilfered, apparently with permission mm-hmm. from the true corporation. That's true. Which also seems like a bit of a self own. I I don't know. It, it's just so. What were you going to say about that? It's part? just that only that it felt. It's okay. Is what I want to say about it. It felt a little imbalanced because that portion of the storyline, which I, I I want to say again, and I, I I imagine this happened in the writers' room as well. That wasn't as interesting to me as the other stuff. So it was wasn't serviced as heavily, and I I'm not faulting that decision, but it did feel a little light mm-hmm. um, in terms of two people want to do the same plan, but one plan was a stalking horse for the actual plan that was going to come a minute later. Okay. You know, sure, yeah. I get it. But there was a, the show earned so much in so many beautiful ways, both in terms of its writing and its production and its um, just modes of storytelling, that when you hear both Adrian and, and Will give their sort of thesis statements about masks, mm-hmm. it resonates on a number of levels, on a comic book level, on a uh, racial level, on a societal level. So that then the more mustache-twirling villainy of the guy just saying, and now I'm going to do this, and we're going to get revenge because it's hard to be a white man these days. Mm-hmm. That felt less satisfying in comparison because so many other things were done so beautifully. But we also had a lot of other moments in the yeah. show. You know, what, what, what were some of the things about the finale that you did like? Well, I'll start from, starting from a macro level, I really, and, and a lot of this, you know, these are sort of feelings that I picked up on, and then, and then I did read that Damon interview with, with Fulcher that I thought was really excellent, too. Basically thinking about this as an origin story for Angela and whatever may come ahead, and I mm-hmm. thought it ended in a perfect place. And I thought that the one lingering feeling that I was starting to notice as the series was clearly heading towards the finish line was this idea of Dr. Manhattan and his power. And, mm-hmm. you know, so much of the, the one of the central tenets, you know, wh- what does Will Reeves talk about when putting on the mask? He talked about feeling fear and anger and powerlessness and attempting to claim power. And when you talk about that in terms of like a depowered superhero, it's whatever. When you talk about it in terms of uh, a black man who has experienced the level of trauma that that character had experienced, it means something quite different. Mm-hmm. So it did make me think that, well, okay, so this is the end of Dr. Manhattan, and then all of his power, I guess, dissipated because none of the two people, neither of the two people who wanted to take it. Lady True and... And, and the senator, neither of them got it. James and I started New to feel York. like this yeah. is sort of <laughs> painful uh-huh. that no one got to have it because is that a good or a bad thing for the universe? Right. And then, and then uh, Will Reeves has his line, um, he was a good man, but he should have done more with it. Yes. And you think about there's a sort of selfishness in a way of having enough power to literally create life to do anything, mm-hmm. omnipotence, and to hide it away from yourself so you can just live a quiet life. That is a fascinating idea and one that I think a lot of people can, I don't know, relate to. But, I mean, none of us are sitting on our own omnipotence, but a lot of us would choose comfort over conflict yeah. whenever possible. Dr. Manhattan was, a, was pretty moody. He was a stay-at-home dad. Ultimately. I guess. Yeah. I when, mean, when, he was when, also when, like, I'm taking my toys and going home. Yes. But when he decided to come back and play, he removed his own abilities, basically, mm-hmm. and just wanted to just chill. Yeah. Um, and so. Should try and make these waffles. <laughs> I mean, why not? But <laughs> so then opening up this idea that had been seeded throughout that, okay, what the really radical thing would be to take that power and put it into someone who has processed trauma, mm-hmm. who has seen, you know thanks to her father's medicine, seen quite a bit of the 20th century, mm-hmm. suddenly empowered, 
is really exciting and really provocative and I thought was a phenomenal way to both end the series and to sort of reframe everything that came before. Because I started to worry. worry. I, hate, I, I hate it when in our role as commenters or critics, we start to adopt yeah, the language of concern trolling. I, I wasn't worried. I was entertained. Yes. That's but the I, thing is, like, I think it's worth noting is that at no point during the season was yeah. I, like, looking at my phone. I loved watching the show. Nor was I ever like, I don't know. I love being able to talk about this yeah, show. Yeah, this mean, is just, one this of is the— what we're, This is what we want. This is one of the most provocative shows and intellectually stimulating shows that has been on television in a really long time. But just to say that the one thing that I was tracking near the end of the episode was what was ultimately Angela's role because she started the series as this incredibly dynamic, strong, active protagonist and then became a receptacle for mm-hmm. other people's knowledge and experience. Quite literally. Um, in terms of her grandfather and then also in terms of her role with Dr. Manhattan. And then it, there was the moment when she's saying goodbye to Dr. Manhattan and to Cal, which she becomes again briefly, where, and Regina King could play the hell out of anything, but she's the mourning spouse mm-hmm. in that scene. God, she's amazing at it. But I, I wondered if that's all she was going to be now. Right. And is she just going to end up taking the kids, taking off the mask and picking up the kids? And I was really glad that the bedrock of what the show, the spine of what the show wanted to be was really about her and what was going to happen to her because of everything else. And then we recentered at the very end. What did you think of, because this is an idea that I've been sort of chewing on since I saw the finale, is this idea that Anybody who wants that kind of power, there's something wrong with them. Because that sort of suggested, that sort of Adrian sort of says that about why Lady True needs to be stopped. Because Lady True says, I'm going to take Dr. Manhattan's power and I'm going to, I'm going to make a lot of Priuses. You know, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to, cha- I'm going to save this world. I'm going to get rid of all the nuclear weapons. Right. And um, the, she needs to be stopped because, you know, anybody who would want that is suspect. Right. I guess. But is it because, Angela receives it as a kind of inheritance. What is the reason why Angela taking the egg at the end separates her from? Because her her motivations are obviously altruistic with them. That and she's she hears Will and Will says, "I mean, I, I'd love to he hear could Damon have done more. I'd love to hear Damon speak to that. You know, I think that there's clearly something. Again, I mentioned mom, a moment ago about Lady True's Achilles' heel in a way being her need for her parents to approve of her. You could probably make an argument that her inability to let go of what she didn't get makes her suspect, right? She's mm-hmm. not as advanced, let's just say, psychologically speaking, because Angela has had the, the run of this series, not to mention the run of her life, to process unimaginable loss, mm-hmm. her own, certainly with her parents uh, and her family, but then also now through her grandfather, a century of loss and trauma. Um, and maybe that makes her more, quote unquote, worthy. I, the other idea that I think is a provocative one is this sort of, I mean, it's built right into the show, this sort of chicken and the egg idea. Like, sure. I did feel this acute sense of, oh, we're taking the one superpowered person in this fictional universe and removing him. So then what? what is this universe? Which is a pretty interesting idea yeah, in right. itself. Yeah, right, where if you can't look to the stars and say, come save us. Then what can you do? Right. But, but maybe one of the things being said here is that the, the power exists in this universe, right? It's just a question of who wields it for how long. It's, yeah. it's Thor's hammer or Captain America's shield or whatever. It's the, it, it's the MacGuffin that powers everything else that's to come, which might be a good segue to say that I do think that Damon was being genuine in these interviews when he says that he's done with this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, someone else might pick it up. I mean, Regina King doesn't seem to be done. Really? Yeah, I mean, in the variety piece that that ran about it there, and they talk about they talked to Nicole Castle and Damon and and Regina and and 
Nicole Castle is like, I'm still like kind of coming down from production. Damon says what he has been saying, which is that, you know, obviously, I guess never say never, but for the most part, he thinks it would be interesting if someone else took the reins or... I, th- I think that's right. I mean, yeah. I think that's a that's a really healthy way to look at it. And I think that that is, that is exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that he certainly did not take this mantle lightly to pick it up and and do this with it and and you know was brought at times at least judging from you know conversations that that we've had with him or that he you know publicly was brought quite low by the weight of this to do it again not only would like doubly violate the the witchcraft curse of Alan Moore mm-hmm. who never would return to this and didn't want anyone to return to it i think it would kind of um I don't know what the quite word is. It wouldn't contradict the power of what he did, mm-hmm. but it would. It would be. It would be. It would be curious. Yeah. And 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 that might not be the case if he waited twenty years to come back to it. But I think to say let's give more, and we are in a let's do more culture. Sure. Um, I was really pleasantly surprised to see the stories in 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 the trades a week or two ago saying that the Watchmen was a hit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's you know because. Twitter, not always real life. I mean, it is it is the belt show. I mean, it's definitely had that kind of electricity around it where it's like you can feel people talking about it. You can feel that it is shaping a conversation among people and asking people to think about things that they ordinarily don't think about. It introduced, uh, you know, the Black Wall Street massacre to a lot of people who didn't know about it. Um, there's been some fantastic writing about that this year. And I think it also um, gives the people in charge at Warner at DC uh, a jolt of something that they have that they have been lacking, which is, I think I've, I usually, when I go on this tangent, I usually put it, I give credit to John Landgraf, who told me once, whether on this podcast or elsewhere, you know, that he has like a Venn diagram of things he looks at mm-hmm. when he's looking to renew things. And it's, it's not as simple as it used to be. It, it, ratings matter, but so do award recognition and so does do critical commentary rotten tomatoes you take (laughs) that (laughs) you take the statues you would take the rts and and the the likes and then you're just like renewed but it's also (laughs) the sort of the buzz Uh or whatever that means these days and for dc you know wonder woman did really well obviously and aquaman made a ton of money but they're not getting a lot of that like oh but this is also worthwhile Mm -hmm. or important Mm -hmm. piece of it which actually is part of this sort of, you know, it's, it's a vague construct, but you kind of need a little bit from pile A, pile B, pile C to be running a, at least a, what appears to be a successful media company. Mm-hmm. So um, I wasn't, I didn't say that to cast aspersions on the success of Warner Media, but, but <laughs> merely to say, I don't actually know what makes it successful. Sure. But it's sometimes it's, it, it seems... It was a W. It was a win, it was a win for everybody involved. So I, so the, so the, the conversations about having more are happening. Yeah. And doing more are happening, whether they are in like, please, please, Damon, don't let this go mode, or they're in, cool, we agree that this is a special flower and we're going to tend to this garden for a while and see what see what takes root. Uh, I want to talk, the reason why I brought up that question about um, the desire for that power being a, um, being a reason not to be bestowed it, you know, mm-hmm. and that idea that Lady True as as Adrian's daughter and having the same sort of almost is pharaohistic a word? Sure. I'm making it one. I love uh, it. Pharaohistic desires to be like a ruler and and sort of a, if not a conqueror, I mean a conqueror, but also like the guiding sort of North Star of a of a galaxy. Angela doesn't have that. Angela, Angela, what, like that is what he means. In some ways, when Will is like, 
he could have done more. In some ways, it means he could have done less. He could have mm. he could have been less interested in starting life on Europa and and creating utopia for Adrian to sort of play out his days in. He could have just actually come back and fixed some things here. Yes. Now you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown, and I think that would be a fascinating investigation is to see how somebody who is pretty unambiguously good, although obviously gets a, gets into some pretty high-tension interrogation <laughs> techniques at various points in the season, what she would do with that power, you know? And that was like an incredibly powerful image. And, you know, for all the faux cut-to-black Sopranos sort of endings that we've had over the last 10 years or whatever, nine, I guess not, not a tremendous amount of those, but we've had some, amb- you know, ambiguous endings. I thought that the the stepping out of the water was one of the most powerful endings that it. we've had, you know, and... I loved it, and I also loved it for the same reasons that I think Damon's speaking about in these interviews, that it wasn't really ambiguous. No. It was just beautiful, because we don't... That's another story. The yeah. other story starts at that moment. There was nothing, nothing in the nine episodes of Watchmen that suggests she just dunked herself. Right. But it ended at the right moment. But but you're speaking to something, too, that I think is really interesting, and... and, and one of the th- reasons why I think we're just grappling with the multi-tentacle giant squid nature of Watchmen, which is that almost any one of these tentacles or threads, depending on your, your vegetarianism and metaphors, is uh, any one of these could be its own, is, is its own rich text. Mm-hmm. This idea of an actual god and what, who is ambivalent is so fascinating, you know? And I think there's something that's really baked into our culture that can can be reflected in that story. Like, you know, how people like, you know, Elon Musk or, or people like him, or is there anyone like him, want to put life on Mars before they work on fixing life here. Right. You know, there's this like, well, this is done. Yeah. And I'm going to start over and I'm going to do better this time because there's a, such ego baked into it. It's like you could end homelessness or you could build a, cyber truck like which, which which is more valuable to civilization right i may have tipped the scales in terms of people I, I, clearly <laughs> people might know what i think about it just like rise You're of, like trucks rise of fucking skywalkers <laughs> trucks bro but but that idea is so interesting rolling up on your kid's school it, like bane <laughs> you might need to you might need bane's mask next oh time my, you go back to your school god <laughs> i was yeah, exactly i was you were you the, were born in the flu i was born remember remember when you were a kid I don't know if your doctor, did your pediatrician have, you walk up and there's reception and then there's the sick room and the well room for waiting room. My do- it's, it's like a foundational memory of my childhood. The pediatrician's office that I went to, there were two different rooms, dog. I don't think I had that. Yeah. I think it was just sort of assumed that if you were at the doctor's office, no, you probably it was weren't a, super healthy. No, a pediatrician, like you have your annual checkup and you're not about to be there like catching the croup. I don't really have a lot of pediatrician memories. Do you want to do you want to unpack that now, <laughs> no, Lady I'm, True? Like, is there <laughs> what uh, were you were you born of human man and woman, or were you a? Uh, That's you right. A I was just a syringe in Karnak. Today's episode of the Watch is brought to you by American Express. I am one of the lucky few with a commute in LA that only takes about fifteen minutes. I'm. I apologize. I know that most people are stuck in bumper-to-bumper, brutal 405 traffic where they see their life passing in front of their eyes. Not me. I come into work in a great mood because it only takes me a few minutes to get here, but I still make the most of my drive by listening to my favorite podcasts. I'll get a head start on shows like House of Carbs, Binge Mode, or The Big Picture, 
and then I'll finish up the episode when I get into the office. It's a great way to ease myself into the day, and no matter what your morning commute looks like, you can ease your mind a little bit knowing that with Green from Amex, you're getting three times points on travel, including transit like taxis, ride shares, subway swipes, and even ferry rides for those of you who get to enjoy a nice breeze on your way to work. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash green from Amex. Terms apply. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Bose. Bose AR is a first-of-its-kind platform that is an audio-first approach to augmented reality. Bose AR-enabled products have motion sensors embedded inside that can detect your head orientation and body movement while you wear them. AR-enhanced apps can then use this information to offer you tailored audio content. So Disney and Bose are working together to bring fans a new immersive audio experience based on the beloved Star Wars movies. Available in the official Star Wars app and exclusively for Bose AR-enabled devices, fans can journey through an immersive 360-degree audio augmented reality timeline of Rey's lightsaber with spatialized sound for unique gesture-driven interaction where the user can freeze the scene, move towards elements, hear new content, and experience the story from new angles. What does that mean, right? Well, it means you basically get to live inside a world of sound that is Star Wars. Following along with the sort of history and trajectory of Rey's lightsaber throughout the movies, you can put yourself in these iconic scenes and hear it in a completely new way. My favorite is you get to be in the lightsaber training scene from Star Wars A New Hope where Luke is fighting that droid that's sort of flying around him and Obi-Wan's talking to him and Han is talking to him about you know, how he prefers blaster over lightsaber. And if you move your head, if you move around the room, if you move your head up and down, you can hear it from all these different angles. It's like being Luke Skywalker, honestly. It's pretty amazing. To celebrate this partnership, Bose will be releasing a limited edition Star Wars QC35 headphones too. Visit Bose.com slash The Watch to learn more. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The L Word Generation Q, a bold new series for a bold new generation. Get wrapped up in the lives of a fun and fabulous group of friends as they experience success, setbacks, sex, and of course drama in Los Angeles. This fierce crew is doing it all from confidently starting new relationships to taking on the patriarchy and running for public office. The L Word Generation Q is now streaming only on Showtime. I want to talk a little bit about things that we'll remember from the season and the stuff that we love. Sure. Um, I, I wanted to give... A special shout out to, um, we kind of got into this in the episode before we talked to Damon about the idea that this was a um, kind of a, so much of a piece of the other things that he has done yeah. and lost and and leftovers. And I thought that the style in which the story was told for the most part was so breathtaking in terms of the almost short story collection style mm-hmm. of which it was done, which obviously harkens back to Lost and the way Lost would have a a central story that was happening on the island and then usually do a character-based flashback of some sort. Three, there would be an A and B story on the island and then the C story would be these flashbacks to the A story. Right. And th- have and each episode would have thematic coherence and they did that 20 times a year. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. Insane. And Hurley built a golf course. That's right. Um, and I especially loved, and I don't think he had done this before because, you know, obviously Lost starts with the crash. Leftover starts with the disappearance. The in-media res way in which he told this story, which they told this story, how as soon as it starts, everything is already happening. Mm-hmm. And even though it ends with this, incre- the first episode ends with this uh, incendiary 
inciting event of of Judd's hanging, you feel like you have you you're catching up. You're sprinting to catch up with this world, yeah. and all of the um, little like sort of uh, breadcrumbs that lead back to Watchmen, but also lead back to American history, that also lead to our contemporary state of affairs, were so interesting and so exciting, but at never at the expense of this propulsive, thrilling story that I thought was made all the more propulsive and thrilling by the original score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which mm-hmm. I can't. I just think is remarkable, um, which felt like a character of its own, mm-hmm. the way in which it kind of made this suburban utopia dystopia out of Tulsa. Mm-hmm. And just the uh, feeling of how many different things must have happened before we started watching this show. And the way in which I thought it was an absolutely masterful piece of creating a world. And mm-hmm. it, it it was up until the very last second it was on. Yeah, I I loved it, and I loved it for as much as much for its content as for its messy shape. Like I don't I don't watch TV shows for neat and tidy resolutions. Mm-hmm. There are TV shows that'll do that, and that's great. And sometimes the tidy resolution will come in the episode, you know. And you can Detective Benson or what does she know? Arch Sergeant Benson. I mean, she's been a detective in the SVU unit for oh, 22 yeah. years. I don't know. Yeah, she, yeah. she better have some sort of honorific. Um, or can you imagine <laughs> what her? She, she's Doctor Manhattan. Actually. Can you imagine what her pension plan is like <laughs> after just banking 22 years on the hard special victims beat? Anyway, I love that it was all out there. I love that the show. You could have a conversation with 10 different people, and 10 different 10 people could have 10 different reasons why they loved the show or aspects of the show that they loved and they considered to be the main text of the text and they yeah. would all be right. Yeah. It is really exciting and inspiring to see something sanctioned by the highest levels of power, both, you know, in terms of Warner Media and HBO and its um, prestige imprimatur, but also a, um, a franchise and a piece of IP as valuable as this and watching people play with it really play with it like clay, you know, and try out new things um, is really thrilling. It was really thrilling as a viewer, as a creator, and then and then I'll say also as a podcaster because we dream of shows like this. Yeah, we don't cover. get to do, we don't get to do shows like this where it's worth talking about every Monday. Yeah, and, that, and that we could talk about through any number of prisms, whether it's a media story or a story story or, or a... Um, or something that caused us to go into a deep Wikipedia Tanahasi Coates dive, mm-hmm. or you know, enjoying the high level nonsense of like the Pedipedia entries that that come out, uh, including the one that dropped this morning that that pretty much confirms the Lube Man theory. Yeah, the Pedipedia stuff is really interesting because it's like ten years ago that just would have been the show. Mm-hmm. Pedi would have been a character, and maybe he would have a report of the week. And we would he would be the C plot, and it would be PD filling in the the sort of gaps between what happens when Rorschach's journals get published mm-hmm. by the New Frontiersmen, and how does that lead to Jane Crawford at the end of the season, essentially using Rorschach's last words before Doctor Manhattan. Just, if you're going to do it, just get it over. Yeah, you know, just do it. Uh, you know, paraphrasing, but like, no, no, no. You're right about that. My face was just falling because I'm trying to think about the, that character, the Jane Crawford character. Yeah. I it, it, that was a tougher one, like just in terms of I I don't know if at the end of the nine episodes I tracked her sure and the Crawfords 
the Crawford piece of it, mainly because the 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 villains became that sort of mass of villainy mm-hmm. at the end that were just eliminated with a light show. But uh, but again, even within that, as you're pointing out, there was the nod to the original. There was the sense of symmetry. There mm-hmm. was the sense of time all happening at once, which was central to Damon's conceit of the whole thing. Yeah. You got anything else you want to talk about with this show in particular? Do you want to move on and chat a little bit about Star Wars? Really curious. No, just it's— ex- it, this You want has- to talk about Marty Scorsese and Bob Iger's <laughs> summit? God, can you imagine? Can you imagine? I was thinking about what it must be like to schedule that that meeting. Why do you take the meeting if you're Marty? Uh, well, there. I actually think that, not that I would ascribe any, like, completely nefarious reasons behind uh, anything. Like, Iger seems like a good enough person, but, like, yeah, I guess we should have Iger counter music here. Big we're, fan of this podcast. We're talking about him. Drop the Trinogues. There is a lot of stuff, because Disney is in control of a lot of catalog now. Yeah. And Disney, you know, Matt Zolersites wrote that piece about Disney pulling Fox titles out of oh, rec right. theaters and yeah. things like that. So it, I think that there could be some actual value in having a powwow about, you know, the future of movies and stuff like that. If it's just to be like, dude, you got to see Ragnarok. Can you it's, imagine that? If, it's like, if Martin Scorsese yeah. at 80 walks into Bob Iger's Burbank, <laughs> his terrarium, yeah. vivarium in Burbank. Yeah, kind of Lady True <laughs> And he's office. like, Marty, big fan, loved Goodfellas. I love another movie. It's called <laughs> Thor Ragnarok. Both movies. <laughs> Thus, both. I mean, by the way, this is a conversation for another day, but the way people treat Scorsese mob movies mm-hmm. is not dissimilar to the way people treat MCU movies. Right. Oh. Like you're you're zigging. I, I don't mean to. I'm you're just z- saying that like you're the Zag Lord today. Come on. I'm just saying if Marty it, it, Marty made a silence two. Uh-huh. No boogaloo whatsoever uh-huh. because of the aforementioned silence. That would be one thing. But he made the Irishman starring his guys. And his guys are his guys. And this movie, and you know, we'll talk about it maybe in the new year when I fucking finish I was going to say, do you want it to say what episode of The Irishman you're on? I finished the pilot. <laughs> but, <laughs> shouts to Sean Fennessy. But, you know, the fandom and the sort of like, oh, we got that guy, you know, like that aspect of it. Uh-huh. I mean, there's a moment in episode one of The Irishman, you're the Netflix miniseries. Fan. You're killing me right now. Where it's De Niro, Pesci, Keitel yeah. and Cannavale in a room. In fucking Villa de Roma in Philadelphia, yeah. I'm like, man. I'm like, I, these are the only Avengers I recognize. You know oh, what I yeah. mean? Like, so this you're is saying 100%. you're on, you're, that's like, but you're like the sort of fandom of that. I'm just saying that that he, it, I, I, agree, I fundamentally agree with Scorsese that there's a difference between artistic ambition in between the movies that he makes and other people, and you know, other great auteurs make mm-hmm. and what Marvel does. I think both are kind of incredible in their way. Sure. Um, but that there is an aspect of the uh, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Casino, Departed, Irishman run that plays to a pop or more popcorn sensibility that puts it kind that the conversation can be similar. Okay. Um, but all I wanted to say at the end about, Watch, about Watchmen was just what a joy it was to have the show and to talk about it. And I am very curious what, if any, ripple effect it might have on the next few years of development. Mm. Because it was different. It was different, you know, in, in, for all the ways we've talked about. Yeah, it do you was think different. it's singular or do you think it's something that you can learn lessons from? My fear is that it's singular, but because 
honestly, it combined three things that three great tastes that don't often go go together. One is, you know, extremely valuable big brand IP, which is to be protected at all costs. Two, like just, you know, black belt level TV craftsmanship and care in the form of Damon. There aren't there aren't that many people mm-hmm. like him who can operate on that high of a level. Uh, all of them are extremely, you know, well rewarded for their efforts and are very busy. Mm-hmm. Three, a commitment to a level of batshittery not usually seen in things that aren't the OA. Yeah. You know, or other types of programs that are just seen as plucky swings that don't actually connect and find an audience. And you combine all three of those, you get something really noteworthy and special. Is it a complete success? Well, I think it's actually transcended that binary. I don't I don't think of it, I, I'm not thinking that it stuck the landing the way I think it's in Damon's head, the way like did Lost stick the landing. I think that it is, it is, it is itself. It was a brilliant it, piece of storytelling. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm not fully I'm trying optimistic. To, just, the re- it, I, I drifted away for a second because I was just thinking about what would have happened if uh, Alan Moore had texted Damon back with just like fireworks emojis. Firework, firework, firework. And it was just eggplant, like. And was like, sorry, big thumbs. Fire- <laughs> <laughs> fireworks, fireworks, fireworks. And he was just like, get, get this bread. As Kaya says every morning when I walk in. <laughs> And she's like, rise and grind, let's get this bread. Yeah. What would you, like, how does it change if he gets a, a blessing? I mean, I'll just, for the third time in this podcast, refer to Lady True's face when <laughs> Ozymandias teleports away yeah. before her greatest triumph. Right. You know, what would her face have been if he had teleported back and given her a hug? <laughs> been like, want to have a catch day? Let's, let's get this bread. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Lady True and Ozymandias could have, they could have come up with some pretty cool cyber trucks. Without question. Yeah. I thought her, I thought the spaceship she came up with on the fly. Yeah. With its like, you know, <laughs> fucking Goldman group <laughs> sleep system. How about the Mandalorian? You know what's funny about the Mandalorian, Chris? Huh? People just like it. Yeah, you know, it's great. It's it is essentially a space western, which ultimately Star Wars is in general. But I just think like the week to week. Mission of the Week style is really suiting my brain right now. I think people are enjoying, like, just new hits of it every week. It's just, it's pleasant. It's enjoyable. There's a Baby Yoda. Has anyone mentioned that before? The thing is, is I want to know, where's the Baby Yoda coverage? Chris, that's a real breakout character, I think. There's potential there if they knew how to market it. Don't tell anybody. Because maybe Star Wars is going to get a hint, and they're going to start making toys or something like that. And speaking of Star Wars, everyone should be listening to Binge Mode Star Wars. Remember, you can just say, hey, Google, play Binge Mode Podcast. Podcast. Sure. Playing the latest episode of Binge Mode, Star Wars, The Mandalorian, Chapter 6, The Prisoner, Star Wars. Hey Google, pause podcast. What else? What else? What else? Uh, well, no, I think we were going to just briefly... You seem psyched to talk about Star Wars. Well, I just I just wondered, we haven't actually, because we've had The Mandalorian to talk about, and apologies, not this week, because I'm behind, but... Um, Do you want me to just to recap it for you? No. The last two weeks? Um, no. No. R.I.P. Baby Yoda. What? No, I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, also, it'd be crazy if I broke the news to you. And that's how I broke it. I'd appreciate it. Actually, I would want it to come from you. It would not come from me. You know what I mean? Because your phone would explode because I, of how many tweets were going off about it. To misquote it. Dr. Manhattan, I didn't want to be alone when Baby Yoda died. <laughs> so thank you. We haven't actually talked about this movie, which, because there has been a lot of other content. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
where uh, let's just do a quick check-in because we're both seeing it. Okay. So, so yeah. one to ten, a, a two a two questions, both a one to ten scale. First question is how excited are you to see this movie? Ten. This is always the best moment. Really? The second before you see it. Okay. For the last however many years, when when did uh, Force Awakens? It's come only out? been fucking four years. Force Awakens came out longer than four years ago. No, it came out in 2015. Okay, so for the last four Isn't years. Isn't that insane? I thought so. I was like, well, it must have been 2012 or 2013. But 15, 17, 19. They just, they just dropped them. It wasn't. Okay, so the trailer for Force Awakens came out in like 14, right? Yes. So for the last, so almost five years, I think that the one thing that's never gone away is my anticipation for these things. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I was I started rewatching bits of uh, the trilogy, the most recent trilogy, over the weekend in anticipation more than anything, just to kind of remind myself of mm-hmm. like, what's up with Poe? What's Han, that guy doing? Han shot first. Oh, the recent trilogy. Yeah, the recent yeah. trilogy. I got the, the I first trilogy. Have, I think I got. it. I have no idea yeah. who Poe is. <laughs> Full disclosure, no idea. You know who plays him? Yeah, that's why I know it's yeah. Oscar Isaac. In a spaceship, right? And hello, you had. But I was me there. just like, did I miss something? Like, what do I? What? Yeah. Is, what is at stake for Poe going into this movie? Uh, and you know, what I wound up doing was rewatching a bunch of the trailers, which is pathetic, but also is when I'm almost at my happiest with this, right? Because you kind of get the taste of everything without the bittersweet aftertaste of like, what? <laughs> you know, like, and so I think I'm at a 10. Yeah. I'm really excited. I don't think, I think that the trailers for this movie, I have been sort of the least enthused about of any Star Wars movie, including yeah. Solo. But I'm almost hoping that that is a, uh, that's a good sign. Because they've been saving it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm almost so, hoping that there's something in this movie that is like just profoundly awesome. For but, some reason, Richard E. Grant is the one who's like almost spoiling it online. Have you seen that? No, but I love that guy. Yeah. I love that he's a part of it. Um, second one to 10 question is what is your optimism level? Like in terms of what you think this is going to deliver for you? Six and a half, six, but don't don't take that as like faint praise. Okay. Like I, I think that they will do something in would, this movie that's pretty awesome. Would you like some faint praise? Yeah. I am, I am a horizontal line emoji. Okay. I'm five and five. Okay. Do you think it's because you're in your 40s or do you think? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I also, people have heard me say this before and I will go into the movie with an open mind, but I don't know what questions this movie is answering. I don't know. I, I, I don't care who Ray's parents are. That's not something that the first two movies has taught me to be interested in. Right. I think I'm interested, if anything, in the Ray kylo dynamic, because The Last Jedi did a great job of, as we've said multiple times, killing the past, making, to me, I mean, that movie was made from where I am as a Star Wars fan, basically, and your mileage may vary on that, but saying this CGI no, nothing is a nothing mm-hmm. in Snoke, that the past doesn't matter, you can kill the past, and then now we're going to be about something new, and there's something more to be said here, you know, and that these characters... You know, you can read John Boyega interviews where he's like, I miss my pals, but I actually think that Ryan Johnson took a beat to do character work on these characters that really were more just cool archetypes in The Force Awakens. So, Well, I thought, you know, he's gotten a lot of flack the last couple of weeks because he's been pretty like, we should have listened to like the, the Redditors, you yes. know? <laughs> but <laughs> always, always a mistake. I think he had, he did get a raw deal in the second movie. 
Like, I thought his character was really pretty cool when in the first movie. he was in a space movie. casino with Justin Thoreau. I just think he got, like, kind of put, set on, like, a, a vision quest. Well, but I think, again, this was, and we talked about this the other day, maybe it's a abundance problem. But I think that a Star Wars movie yeah, there should about just be three characters. Yeah. Finn is an interesting movie. Right. I, actually, the most interesting, I'm going to just start throwing out stuff without having thought about it Do at it. all. This is a podcast, right? I believe that's the format. <laughs> Uh, we have to break, a, for, we have to break for weather. One um, second. Traffic and weather on the fives. A stormtrooper removing his helmet and then removing his armor is the simplest and most elegant, probably best origin story this entire franchise has had mm-hmm. since Womp Rat shooting Farm Boy becomes Space Knight. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. That's so interesting. And it's baked into this because everyone was faceless. All the stormtroopers... You know, when I was a kid, I don't know if you were the same way. I thought they were robots. I did, yes. And then, oh, those are people in there. That's right. Interesting. Well, they talk, but I was like, who knows? Like, maybe um, they just have like dope vo- voice. Robots program. can talk, bro. <laughs> I mean, I was watching Transformers at the same time. I have like, a robot not... that comes into my room every morning and says, "Rise and grind. Be, Let's get this bread." Be nicer to Kaya. She puts on that suit. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't. She doesn't get paid extra to do it. And then Poe, like, okay, like dashing space pilot. That's also a show or a movie. Maybe it's more telling that I said show. But it had to, but these movies had to be about something ultimately. And I think what they were what so far what it seems to be that they're gonna settle into is being about just giving everyone a little bit more of what they originally liked. Yeah. And resolving it into something larger. It was always Palpatine. It's always about Luke's holy bloodline or whatever. Yeah. And 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 then on we go. They had the the first three movies, obviously, you know, in the late 70s and 80s, early 80s, revolutionized the pop culture world and the entertainment industry and introduced a, a, the idea that you could 360 a movie and have it be something that was a theme park ride and toys yeah. and a lifestyle and uh, essentially like a yeah. 12... Ex- extremely young thug voice lifestyle. <laughs> 12 <laughs> months a year sport rather than just a movie. Yeah. The second batch of movies were very and I, I, don't, I don't care for them very much but we're obviously like we have to pay George back here. And if he wants to make a movie about like parliamentary procedures and tell this story, like we gotta let him rock it. And these thir- three, these next three movies were about hedging bets. They That's were. ultimately what they were about. They were about and, the and old I think characters, that that is, but also the new characters. I think that was always the sort of thing, that's been the thing that has kind of nipped at the ankles of this entire endeavor of Solo, of Rogue One, of... Mm-hmm of Mandalorian to some extent of we gotta always kind of have an out here. And that was sort of the most disappointing thing about all of this stuff where it's like, hey, hey, well, we just said that's just what Kylo says to Rey. We don't even know. Like, maybe she does have important parents. Yep. And it's because, like, you didn't like your feedback. You focus grouped it with a movie and now you guys are kind of backing off the statement and that's fine. I don't necessarily think I love that Last Jedi. I don't think it's like eight and a half. You know, it's pretty good, but it's I, I'm not necessarily like now you're just desecrating Ryan Johnson's like artistic statement. Yeah. I think he had a viewpoint on that. I think he was like, what if all this stuff and this kind of ties back into the Watchmen stuff? What if all this Joseph Campbell bullshit that we talk about is just like one version of how things can go? Yes. And what if it would be more powerful if someone from nowhere, from no one, could be as, as important as the son of the most important, powerful being in the universe. 
go to the scariest part of the of the script of the project not as a viewer but i'm saying if you're writing something and there's something that's freaking you out interrogate why it's freaking you out Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you're always right like maybe there's a good reason that you shouldn't you know do that i'm trying to think i'm trying to think of a glib way to say something deeply like an offensive thing that you don't want to make a musical about but i'm not going to do that i'm going to save people a (laughs) twisted not enough coffee analogy but but generally it's definitely more interesting as a writer and I think as a viewer to see someone run towards the scariest part. Mm-hmm. I think that the story that, that Damon told us last week about JJ, you know, attempting something that felt radical at the time in a Star Wars, uh, sorry, in a Superman script and then, you know, having that whole thing taken away because the internet freaked out. I think that was an interesting anecdote that I'm going to be actually going to be thinking about for a while because it's, you framed it to basically to show JJ's bona fides as yeah. like a risk taker and someone who's chasing the best version of the story. The the caveats that I would throw on it are one, what lesson did he learn from having that taken from him um, by people who are angry about stuff like that? But also within the scheme of things, wondering about making a small tweak to Superman's parentage while still making a Superman movie is still making a Superman movie. Sure. You know what I mean? So how radical can you even be? I think, I think Watchmen at this moment, is probably the most successful version of it. But even it was struggled with that wrestling match, and that, that was dominated our conversation about the finale. Yeah. So the truth is, there's no way, this is an impossible job to make this Star Wars movie. Yeah, of course it is. There is no way to satisfy everyone. And for me, I guess the biggest question going into it is not who Ray's parents are, but who ultimately did they decide to satisfy? Um, and And what kind of movie does that leave us with? And then it also, what kind of podcast does that leave us with in terms of discussing what it meant? I, I, the one thing that Mandalorian has sort of taught me is you don't have to overthink it. There's no reason to turn the faucet off. Like, you don't have to be like, and now the force is over. Mm-hmm. Or now the force belongs to someone else. Or now evil is wiped out of this galaxy. Clearly, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there will be something else in two years and another dark force will rise against a good force because that is the central part of the story is the battle between good and evil. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it gets into more nuanced gray areas between what do we do to be on, quote-unquote, the side of good. And that was, like, one of the coolest things about Rogue One is the Cassian character who was also getting his own spinoff. But we're going to see a Poe show or we're going to see yeah. a Finn show. And we might even see a Ray show. I, You know, they, they really... Disney Plus is, is a thing. So... Nothing ever really ends to take something from both Pharrell Williams and Alan Moore. Mm. And uh, even though I think we're going into the final movie of this iteration of Star Wars, I think it's just the beginning. Yeah. Boy, I'm ready to see it now. All right. Thanks. Uh, For Andy Greenwald. That's me. 555 flat face emoji. I'm Chris Ryan. For Kaya, uh, we have another pod Thursday. So we have our best of the decade pod with Sam Esmail. So usually we do best of the year. Yes. Oh, that's running Thursday. That is running Thursday. I have so many regrets about my list already. Do you really? Yes. Immediately as soon as we were done, I I changed my mind. Too bad. I'll caveat that shit on Twitter. (laughs) By the way, for people still listening, cue the Chernobyl music. Sam requested Mm -hmm. that we do not talk about Mr. Robot with him. Yeah. He does not. He wants to let these last few episodes speak for themselves. We should say... I am letting them speak for themselves because I am woefully behind. Mm-hmm. It is a personal and professional mandate. I cannot wait to catch up and watch these episodes that people are raving about, but that is why we have not talked about it yet. 
Hopefully in the new year we will. But there is no Mr. Robot talk in our Sam podcast. Yeah, by I mean, and, and I'm sorry because I know people really want us to weigh in on that or people have asked us to. Yeah. But we're just not yet. Uh, but we did make a two-hour podcast about the best shows of the decade. So I hope you guys like that. We did do that. And you know who else is heavily featured on that podcast? Kaya McMullen. Your personal robot. <laughs> no. Let's Strike applaud that. Kaya for another great year of Watch Pods. Thank you for producing us, Kaya. This will Thank be the last time we're in us. the studio together. So we have Thursday, we're going to do uh, the best of the decade. And then I believe Monday, Andy and I will have our Star Wars reactions. Oh, yeah, we should. Yeah, so, okay. well, we can record that whenever. But I look forward to that. All right, Frandy, Kaya, this is Chris. Thanks for listening. Great job, Francis. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by The L Word, Generation Q. Oh, hey, you're still listening. Shout out to post-roll ads. So what are you doing tonight? No plans? Perfect. Watch an episode of The L Word, Generation Q. Fire up your Showtime app and settle in for a great night of TV. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Real Real Shop or Consign at The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated consignment from top designers. The Real Real has women's and men's luxury fashion as well as fine jewelry, watches, art, and home at up to 90% off retail. Every item is authenticated by The Real Real's team of authenticators. Shop or consign in-store at therealreal.com or download the app and get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL.